The very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism famously asks, what is the chief end of man? Many of you are able to recite it, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jono, did you say bye? Can't get the John Piper out of the Jono. Chief in a man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And those two things go hand in hand, giving glory and enjoying. The enjoyment of a thing is brought to completion at the glorying of a thing. That is what C.S. Lewis said, that praise brings to consummation uh, the things that we truly love, that our enjoyment is made complete in the praising of the things that we enjoy. To enjoy something and to keep it on the inside is not to really enjoy that thing. And we do this in all kinds of ways, don't we? Many of you enjoy Star Wars. One of our elders, Mark Henley, loves Star Wars. He's never seen a bad Star Wars show or a bad Star Wars movie. I asked him about the last one, not this one. Though I heard this one was the best movie yet. Mark, I said, was this a good movie? And he goes, it was Star Wars. So for Mark, the praising of Star Wars consummates the enjoyment of Star Wars. And that's true for many of you who enjoy that kind of thing. Some of you also remember perhaps on Facebook not too long ago, Natalie Adame posted a video of Alex. Alex is a fan of the Seattle Seahawks, and they just won a game at the last minute, and he, as soon as they scored and won the game, he jumped and danced and jiggled and did all. That's a lot of beef. But he can move. And the point is, is that he loves the Seahawks. And he loves when the Seahawks win. And that eruption is a natural overflow of his delight and enjoyment in that thing. It's a consummation of that thing. It's the way that Matt feels about Nickelback when he's driving in the car. (laughs) The car never lies, Matt. That's the idea that we get in Isaiah chapter 12. This idea that our glorying in something consummates our enjoyment of that thing. That we got a big idea all wrapped around this idea. And it's this, that in God's perfected kingdom, his grace will be our testimony and our obsession forever. That in God's perfected kingdom, his grace to us will be our testimony and obsession forever. Let me just give you a little context here before we get into Isaiah 12, catch you up for those of you who were gone last week and also to bridge a little gap, we didn't finish all of Isaiah 11 last week. And so I'm going to try to briefly wrap up all of Isaiah 11 so we have some context going into Isaiah 12. In verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 11, Isaiah announces a perfect king. And he says in verse 1 that he's not going to be what we expect. He's going to be a little bitty shoot coming from the root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse, in the middle of a field of stumps. That is the disaster, the ecological disaster of human history. You're going, to be, you're going to overlook him. He's going to be not what we expect. But in verse 2, he is going to be anointed by the Spirit. And that Spirit is going to anoint him for, uh, for leadership, for victory over his enemies, and for war. We also see that his anointing is what makes him, in verses 3 and 4, so passionate about justice. That he, his scales will always operate rightly. And he sees past all of the veneer and all of the sophistry of, of human hypocrisy to judge all people rightly. And he's passionate about it. The meek will, in fact, in that day, inherit the earth and the poor in the spirit. Poor in spirit will be comforted. 
And then we see finally this perfect king in verse 5 is perfectly dependable. Righteousness is his belt. Faithfulness is his belt. It's who he is. It is consummate with his very nature. He cannot be otherwise. And so we see this glimpse of a perfected king. And then we see in verses 6 through 9 in chapter 11, Isaiah envisions a peaceful kingdom. So at first he announces a perfect king, but now he envisions a peaceful kingdom. And that's where we see peace dwelling. No more war, no more enmity, even those things that were once at odds with one another, hostile to one another, are now friends with one another. All hostility has been removed. And the knowledge of the Lord, verse 8, verse 9 rather, covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Of course, the answer is how watery is the sea? is really watery. Is there any place that you look at sea that isn't watery? No, it's all water. And so what in this new creation will be breathing and, and pulsing with the glory of God? Every square inch of it will be. His glory is going to fill the earth. And then in verses 10 through 16, Isaiah has announced a perfect king. He envisions a, per, a peaceful kingdom. And in verses 10 through 16, he promises a restored people. And everything that we read in verses 10 through the end of the chapter is going to be fulfilled as a type in Israel's return from Babylon under King Cyrus. The God will be faithful to bring his people, the nation of Israel, back to Jerusalem. But that fulfillment is only a type. A type in the Bible is a real fulfillment, but it's not the final fulfillment. It's a fulfillment that points to an even greater fulfillment yet to come. It's like a three-dimensional prophecy of greater promises to be fulfilled. And that's what, that's what Israel was. And what we find in verses 10 through 12, as it's fulfilled in the church, in the new creation, through the gospel, is that in 10 through 12, he is going to gather us from the nations. In verse 13, he is going to unite us to one another. We will all be one in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, he will exalt us over our enemies. In fact, it even says he will use us to, uh, to stomp out our enemies. And that's what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 20. That, <clears throat> that we, the church, will crush the seed of the serpent. And so he will use us by his grace and the proclamation of his gospel to bring about his purposes here. He will exalt us over his enemies. And then finally in verse 15, good news, he is going to bring us all the way home. Even Abraham, when he was in Canaan, sitting in the promised land where the earthly Jerusalem rested, knew that that wasn't it. He looked forward to a greater city whose founder and builder was God. And so is Isaiah. And we have that promise as well, and God is bringing it about in Christ. He will bring us all the way home. We are, as we sing, bound for the promised land in Christ. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 15. Well, what we see in verse 11 is what Christ will do. But in verse 12, what we see, or chapter 12 rather, what we see is what we his redeemed will do in light of everything that he's done in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is Christ's work. Chapter 12 is our work. And I want you to notice, and you may have noticed this when Adam was reading through it, that it's not dutiful and burdensome work. It is light and freeing, glorious and joyful work. This is what life will look like when we are finally united together in the new creation in Christ and everything is peaceful in his kingdom and we've been reconciled finally and fully to God. Do you remember Paul's response in Romans 8? His response as he meditated in Romans 8 on the love and the grace of God in Christ. He just stops and asks, what are we supposed to say then? What do we say? What can you possibly say to that? That's what he says. Romans 8. How do we respond to God? Sitting and doing nothing like frozen chosen is not an option when we consider the love of God toward us in Christ. And that when we consider the grace of God restoring us 
to restoring to us everything that we had bungled away in our sin and giving us even better than what we had before, what are we supposed to say? What do we say to that kind of love? Isaiah 12 lets us listen to our voices from the future. Verse 1, you will say in that day. Verse 4, you will say in that day. Paul says, what are we going to say? Isaiah is that guy in small group that always has an answer. I got it. You're going to say this. And that's what Isaiah 12 is all about. Isaiah is describing the revival of the church on the day of the Lord. And he's not giving us details about the end times and how they're going to come about. What he's doing is he's creating an impression. He's giving us a foretaste of what it means to live and eat and breathe a spirit of praise. And if you notice in a quick glance through the chapter, there is no distracted, hands in pockets, half-hearted, mumbling praise on that day. No, what we see in Isaiah 12 is when the church will sing, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all, and mean it. That is what Isaiah 12 is about. You glance at it, the structure is really easy to see. In verses 1 and 2, we see grace individually personalized. This is your testimony, verses 1 and 2. Then in verse 3, we see grace deeply accessed. And this is our enjoyment. The pronouns change. The you in verse 1 is singular. That's why it follows with singular pronouns. I will give thanks, angry with me, that you might comfort me. It's all singular. It's your testimony. But then the pronouns change in verse 3 to plural. With joy, in the, in the Texas translation, y'all will draw water. It's plural. This will be our enjoyment together. And in verses 4 through 6, we have grace corporately proclaimed. This is going to be our obsession. All the pronouns there are plural as well. What empowers the testimony, the individual testimonies of verses 1 and 2, and the obsession of verses 4 through 6, is the rich enjoyment that we see in verse 3. Verse 3 is the pulsing and thumping heartbeat of the redeemed of God. And it fuels everything that we see around it. It fuels 1 through 2, and it fuels 4, 5, and 6. And so here we're going to consider, as a reminder, three things. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to consider your testimony. We'll consider your testimony. In verse 3, we'll consider our enjoyment. Our enjoyment. And in verses 4 through 6, we'll consider our obsession. Our obsession. We want to be obsessed today with whatever we're going to be obsessed with four trillion years from now. And we get a glimpse into that future in these handful of verses. We're going to see your testimony, our enjoyment, that is of God, and our obsession. Three things in this passage. We'll look up at verse 1. Let's consider that first thing. Your personal testimony. This is true of you if you are a Christian. Okay? It's important to remember, first and foremost, that God gives every single Christian their own experience of what it means to be saved. I don't mean to, to say that there's different definitions of that salvation, but there's Every individual Christian has their own experience of being born again by God's grace, being given a new heart and led to repent and believe in Jesus, to love him and a desire to obey him. Every individual Christian has that testimony. There is no secondhand salvation. So children, listen to me. If this day has not yet come for you, then a day must come when you are brought by God's grace to turn away from sin and to trust Jesus to be saved. You are not a Christian because your mom and dad is a Christian. You might come to church with them. You might read the Bible with them. You might pray with them. You might even 
Say you love Jesus because you want to please your parents. But it, what, what happens to every Christian, and the same for you, is that you need to be brought, if you haven't already, to a personal, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is no secondhand salvation. And that's true for husbands with spouses, or husbands with wives, wives with spouses. My grandfather was a, was a Baptist preacher. That doesn't mean a lick. You are going to one day stand before Christ and give an account for what you did and how you responded to his gospel. And you'll have only one of two responses. Either that's true and I believed it, that I confessed with my mouth Christ Jesus is Lord and believed in my heart that he rose, that he raised him from the dead. Or I rejected it. And there's no middle ground and there's no second chances. There's no secondhand salvation. And so this individual experience is the individual experience of every single Christian. Look at verse one. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Just follow the flow of thought here in verse one. He says, I will give thanks. Who am I giving thanks to? To the Lord. That is Yahweh, the God who is personal, who has made promises to save a people and who keeps those promises. So I am gonna give thanks to the Lord. But why? For what? Well, here's the reason. Because even though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. But why? Why did the anger turn away from me? Well, here's the purpose. Here's why he did it. So that, in verse one, you might comfort me. That word comfort is one of Isaiah's favorite words to describe our salvation. That in a world full of distress and of being disciplined by the hand of the Lord, we just saw all the way back in Isaiah 9 and 10 that the anger of the Lord has not turned away, that his hand was extended out against them. That salvation in Isaiah's category is seen as God comforting his people the way that a mother comforts a child. And that can only be done when his anger is turned away. I think it'd be interesting to pull a large group of Christians, professing Christians, and ask them this question. What is the greatest wonder of your salvation? No wonder there'd be all kinds of answers that would be given. I wonder what many of them would be. I wonder what your answer would be. But here's Isaiah's answer in verse 1. God is now your former enemy. He's your former enemy. Now he comes to comfort you. That is the good news of the gospel, according to Isaiah. That you and I deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. That's real wrath for real guilt. And so we often say things like God hates sin or is angry with sin, but he loves the sinner. But notice what said, you were angry with me. With me. Not with my sin as if it's some kind of detached, abstract entity apart from me. God is angry with the sin and he is angry with the sinner because one cannot be separated from the other. That's why he said all the way back in Isaiah chapter one to their religious hypocrisy, I hate it. Just their worship, just their activity. No, I hate you. We don't mean that in a fit throwing kind of hate in the way that we perhaps hate. God is always righteous in his wrath. And his wrath cannot be separated from his love. They go hand in hand. They're best friends like peanut butter and jelly. But nevertheless, it is very personal. Your sin is not an abstract violation against an impersonal God. Your sin is a personal offense against a personal God who takes it personally. So I appreciate what Jono said earlier. We are too prone on a day-by-day basis to depersonalize and to minimize our sin. But Isaiah gets, you were angry with me. But God's anger, we see here, 
has been turned away. That it's retreated. That now instead of bringing condemnation, we see that he brings comfort. That God's anger against sin. Now listen, it has to be satisfied if God's comfort and salvation is to be enjoyed. That's why his anger turning away has to come before his comfort coming. God cannot comfort if his anger is not turned. That means there can be no salvation without propitiation. That's the point that Isaiah is making. That God's condemnation, it has to fall with full force, but not on us. Now, here in Isaiah 12, Isaiah isn't going to tell us how God's wrath is turned away. He's going to hint at that elsewhere in the book. You may remember earlier, he says, come, reason with me, and I'm going to, I'm going to wash you as white as snow. I'm going to take your sins, which are scarlet, and I'm going to make them white. Okay, so we've got to be forgiven. But how is that going to happen? Later on, he hints at it again. And he says, God is going to end up sending a servant to suffer for his people. And he's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He's going to be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him will, will fall the chastisement that brings us peace. And with his wounds, we will be healed. Just listen to that. Pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds. We deserve that. God's hand falling on sinners in righteous indignation is what we deserve. It is what you deserve because of personal sin against a personal God who takes it personally. And yet all we like sheep, though we've gone astray and though we've all turned each one to his own way, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is good news. And that's the heart of the gospel. That in his great love for guilty people, Jesus, the servant king, changed places with us at the cross. And if Jesus bears our condemnation far away and turns God's anger away from us, that's what it means to be a propitiation. He is satisfied. You might think about like a sponge if you've been out washing the car and you, you pour water into the top of the sponge, but none of it comes out of the bottom of the sponge. It's because the sponge is soaking it all up. That's what it means to be a propitiation, that for all of those who are under Christ, not a drop of God's wrath falls upon us because Christ has soaked up every last drop by the shedding of his blood. He was crushed for us. That is the gospel. And there is no salvation apart from propitiation. There is no comfort unless God's anger is turned away. And that is exactly what Christ does. And if Jesus bears our condemnation far away, then all forgiving grace to us is not simply an extravagance or an add-on or something that we think about and sing about for 45 minutes on a Sunday. It is the beautiful meaning and center and heart of our new relationship with God. It's everything. We have nothing if we don't have that, the comfort of God. And that leads in verse 2 to a confession. Behold, therefore, God is my salvation. Who is the one that turns God's anger away? God turns God's anger away. How did he do it? By God the Father sending God the Son to live a perfect life in the power of God the Spirit so that he might, in his full humanity, live a perfect life of obedience and die a death that you and I deserved so that we might be saved. That is why his name is Jesus. God saves. What's in a name? Everything's in a name. And his name is Jesus. And so in verse two, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. This future voice that we're hearing. This is our voice from the future coming back to us. It is meant to give us pause so that we ask ourselves now, today, in the present, will I trust God alone? Do I feel secure with God alone? You know, one of the striking things about this testimony, this voice coming to us from the future, is its utter simplicity. 
Every single one of us complicates our trust in God. And we mix in other things, plan B's and C's and backup plans, things to supplement God in case, you know, God doesn't really come through in the warp and the wolf of everyday life on Monday when real concerns hit. Not churchy concerns, I mean real concerns. And so we don't trust God, we trust our trust in God, perhaps. We trust our theology of God. We trust our worship of God. Or we cling to God plus whatever makes us feel comfortable or superior or secure in the moment, be it a spouse or the obedience of our children or money in a bank account or physical health or whatever it may be. And the more props we need, here's the key, the more insecure we become because they're not meant to hold you up and support you. They can't. They're wobbly by their very nature, and they will go out from under you. But when the grace of God overrules our folly, real faith begins to come alive, and our outlook on God is so simplified that we say, Behold, God is my salvation. Period. Full stop. He is enough. Period. That's when we discover that all of our backup plans and all of our God supplements were foolishness. That's when our eyes are opened and we see, despite all of our scheming and all of our planning and all of our white-knuckled controlling, that we open our eyes and we see, wow, I have been safe and secure all along. I didn't even believe it. I acted if it wasn't true. And when we discover how safe and secure we are in God, then God alone becomes our song. Look at the second half of verse 2. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is often in Hebrew poetry. You have what's called parallelism. And this is a parallelism that builds on itself. And so behold, God is my salvation is built with this idea. The Lord God is my strength and my song. What do I mean by my salvation? This is what I mean. And then he says, I will trust and I won't be afraid. Why? He's going to build on the idea because he's become my salvation. Isaiah is echoing Moses' song from Exodus 15. Right after God rescued Israel through the Red Sea. Israel was weak, but it didn't even matter. They weren't strong Egypt was way stronger. It didn't matter. Why? Because what we see in that narrative is true in our own lives. That the confidence of the biblical gospel from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, from the first to the second Exodus, is if God is for us, who can be against us? Easy answer. Nobody. When that assurance begins to enter our hearts in real and profound ways, not in lip service ways, I mean in real and profound ways, we see then that the most, even the most frightening and the most frustrating experiences in our life are leading us more deeply into this salvation of knowing God and enjoying God and delighting in God and of stripping us from all of our crutches that we add to God, all of our God's supplements, so that all we're left with is God. That's the glory of his discipline in our life. Notice also here that Isaiah uses an unusual name for God. He says, the Lord God, in my translation, some of your translations say, the Lord, the Lord. Most accurately, it it reads, the Lord, Lord. In Hebrew, it reads, Yah, Yahweh. And it's the only place in the Old Testament it's used. What Isaiah is doing is taking God's personal name in the Old Testament, and he is overusing it. In the same way that we saw him describing and singing to God as holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6. Now he's going, you're not just Yahweh, but you're Yah, Yahweh. Exceeding above and beyond everything I could ask or imagine. He's overusing this name because 
God's grace enriches every single one of us with an overwhelming sense of personal possession in God himself. Some of you have heard me give this illustration before, but it fits this text so well. Some friend of ours adopted a teenage boy from Russia. You can imagine, having grown up in the system in Russia, all of the challenges that came with that. Brought in a teenage boy, and of all of the disciplinary issues, of all of the challenges that came with integrating them into their family, including putting multiple locks on the doors of the girls in their house, he said the hardest habit for for them to break, the mentality that was hardest to break was that he could open up the refrigerator and get anything he wanted anytime he wanted. He was so used to living a life of proving and earning and scraping that he had no category that everything belongs to the Father belongs to you. Well, essentially, this is what we see when we get to the end of verse 2, that when God has become our salvation, he has become our possession. That we don't buy anything, money means nothing to him. Our works and our effort mean nothing to him. Everything that belongs to him is now ours. Everything in the fridge belongs to us. We don't have to beg and borrow and steal to get access to it. We can open it anytime I want, and it's ours, and it's inexhaustible, and it never runs out, and we never get denied. That's what it means for God to be our salvation. And that is what we see in verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. David said, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. But all too often, our view is different from David's, isn't it? We see this world as somehow the satisfaction for our various thirsts. That if I get the right job or if I could land the right boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or if I could have kids that are this way or that way or whatever it may be. We see this world as the satisfaction for our thirst and that sometimes God is the one that seems like a dry and weary land. His word seems like a wilderness. But the truth is the exact opposite. This world is the wilderness. This world is dry and weary and is full only of broken cisterns that cannot hold water that will satisfy. God is our satisfaction. And he opens up to us wells of life-giving fullness through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And it is sufficient. It's enough for all time and for all of eternity. An image that we might have would be, you know, some of you have seen on like those really hot days in the inner city where the sun is scorching down and someone opens up a fire hydrant and all the children strip down to, to their shorts and they're running around and they're splashing in it and drinking deeply of it and they're splashing the water on one, on one another and they're laughing and running and dancing and playing. That's the image that you get from Isaiah 12.3. That they are full of joy. Buckets of cool water, an endless supply, drinking deeply, dunking their faces in it, splashing one another. This is the vision of God's gifts and salvation being widely shared by his people. Remember, all of this is plural. This is us at the fire hydrant. But how will they be satisfied? Because what we notice here is that the deeper that we drink, the greater our joy. Well, Jesus taught, in Matthew 5, blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But how are they going to be satisfied? Jesus explains elsewhere in John chapter 4, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You don't just take it in, it comes out of you. You can't stop it. That's what you see in the verses that follow. Verse 3 is the fountain for verses 1 and 2 and 4 through 6. Living water comes in, living water goes out. That's what happens when you encounter Jesus in his grace. 
One commentator put it this way, that when the believer comes to Christ and drinks, he not only slakes his thirst, but he receives such an abundant supply that veritable rivers flow from him. And this stresses the outgoing nature of the spirit-filled life. He says there is nothing of the piety of the pond in Christianity. Ponds are stagnant and mossy. He says there's nothing of the piety of the pond in Christianity. That stagnant spirituality, the piety of the pond, is not of God. That when we find ourselves in spiritually dry seasons, the problem is never with God. The problem is not that the gospel is not big enough. The problem is not that Christ is not sufficient. The problem is not that his spirit is not all-powerful. The problem is always with us. We've convinced ourselves too often that we can slake an eternal thirst on worldly and broken cisterns. And we wonder why we're so dry and so parched and so weary and so burdensome or so burdened. That means that at the heart of our discipling one another in this church, as we come, as Bonhoeffer said, bringers of the message of salvation to one another. That our exhortation and encouragement to one another is not, stop it. It is not, do better. It is not, work harder. It is not, hey, adopt these practices, they've worked for me. That may be true. That's like ninth in the conversation. That our first stop in all of our discipling relationships as we encounter one another in all of our dryness and all of our weariness and all of our sinning and everything else as we seek to overcome in this world and, and, and enter into this life that we see promised and, and envisioned in, ch- in, verse, in chapter 12 is to look at one another square in the face. Grab each other by the face. Look at me. Brother, Go back to the wells of salvation. Sister, stop. Look at me. Let's go back. We got to go back. Let's go to the wells of salvation. Just consider this. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Wells of salvation, plural. How many are there? What different kinds are there? Is there a well of love and of joy and of peace and of healing? Are there wells for every grace? It's an infinite number of wells for an infinite grace from an infinite God that we will enjoy forever. And we will enjoy every single one. And only the lamb can lead us there. Revelation 7, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will love you and he will lead you and he will heal you and he will mend you And he will guard you and cause you to lie down in green pastures so that you rest and are fat and full on his grace. That he will be their shepherd and he will guide them, listen to this, to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How is he going to wipe away every tear from your eyes? With the springs of living water. And only the lamb leads us there. Oh, how distracted do we get? How often do our eyes stray and wander from the sufficiency of Christ? How many of you right now are broken and weary and tired because you have been trying to slake an eternal thirst off of worldly wells that are dry and empty. Sometimes those are good things, but they're not sufficient things. We need to go back time and again to the wells of salvation. And as we learn to begin with the gospel, as we learn to go back to Christ over and over and over and over again, committing ourselves and all of our conversations to the ministry of gospel reminding, 
then the deeper we drink, the more we will grow in joy. With joy, you will draw water. Do you have joy in your life? If the answer is no, it may be because you're drawing from something other than the wells of salvation. God promises when you draw water from the wells of salvation, you do so with joy. Look to Christ. Delight in Christ. Enjoy Christ. Praise Christ. Trust Christ. Because the reality of what we see here in Isaiah 12 is is more real, is more rooted in reality than the world that we see around us now. This is our destiny. Oh, let's not slake our thirst on anything less than Christ. Keep coming back to the wells. We cannot exhaust it. It's a fire hydrant that just keeps spraying. And there's lots of them. And as a church, as we grow in grace, we should be growing in our dancing and our drinking and our splashing and our enjoying and our delighting in it together. That's what it means to be a gospel-centered church. That Christ is at the heart. Well, in verse 4 through 6, we see springing out of this, just as Jesus said, a corporate proclamation. Look at verse 4. And you will say in that day, that is all of y'all, y'all will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples and proclaim his name, that his name is exalted. Isaiah foresees the global scope of God's glory. People from every nation are exalting the truth about God and about his great deeds. And this also informs our mission as a church now. Notice that calling, making known, proclaiming, all flow from giving thanks. Giving thanks for what? For the wells of salvation, for infinite bottomless wells that we drink from endlessly without joy because God is our possession and our salvation. Oh, we give thanks to him. And out of that thanksgiving comes calling and making known and proclaiming. Thankful Christians proclaim Christ to others. A Christian that does not give thanks or is not filled with a spirit of thanksgiving for the great salvation that he has been given in Christ will rarely ever speak to others about Jesus. You're even a little embarrassed of Jesus. You don't want to be one of those fanatical types. Well, any gospel, or the reason that we're thankful, verse 4, give thanks to the Lord, is because we have God and God is our salvation. Any gospel that centers on the gifts of God, but not God himself, that is getting heaven, seeing loved ones again, playing golf for forever, whatever it may be, an infinite cruise where you sip non-alcoholic margaritas and look at sunsets for forever. I don't think that's the way it's gonna be. Maybe some of you have heard that. I don't know, I hope not. Any gospel that centers on the gifts of God, but not on God himself, giver, will flame out. It's not sufficient. The sparkle of an earthly cistern will always be better. But when we taste and see that God is the gospel, and the exaltation of his great name and of his great deeds becomes our obsession then we'll talk about him with others as easily as we talk about Star Wars or the Cowboys or our favorite bands or whatever else it is that, that our fickle hearts are passionate about in any given moment. This truth that God is at the heart of the gospel was the realization of new tribes missionaries, three new tribes missionaries who were kidnapped in Colombia in 1993. For eight years, their family and friends wondered and prayed and worried. Eventually, they were informed that all three men were dead. 
Dan German was the director of New Tribe's mission at the time, and in an interview, he said that, that over the course of those eight years, their prayers changed. They started praying for one thing, and over time, they began praying for other things and in different ways. They started out praying that God would bring these men home safely. It's a good prayer. They should have prayed it. But in the end, he said, they were praying, God, even if we never know what has become of them, you will still be God. He went on to say that there, and I quote, is a very special sense of awe at who God is and how sufficient he is when the miracle doesn't happen. But the wonder of his sufficiency is still present. God is the gospel. And the triumph of grace is when we come to see that God is God. And that God is the gospel. And that, tr and that truth alone begins to transform not only how we live, but it begins to transform just in those new tribes missionaries, how we die. That our living and dying begin to take on a special sense of awe, no matter what price we pay to spread the song that we see here in verse 4. God is the gospel. That's why Paul said, I don't know whether I'm going to stay here with you or whether I'm going to go. I don't know. Seems to me that it might be better for me to stay here with you all so that I can continue to pastor you, shepherd you, preach the gospel to you. But if I go, oh, that'd be even better. You remember what he says in Philippians? For to me, to live is Christ. He's everything. But to die is gain. How? Is dying gain if living is Christ? It's because dying means more Christ. God is the gospel. He is the springs of salvation, the wells of salvation. He is our justification. He is our sanctification. He is our glorification. Every single well is inexhaustible by God's grace. Which is why in verses 5 and 6, we see ourselves now in the future kingdom. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's the future kingdom. No reservations, no holding back, no frozen chosen, no mumbly praise. Joe's little baby claps that he tries to get us going with all the time will end up looking like this in the whole congregation because of who God is. We can't help ourselves. His glory is pulsing and emanating in every fiber of our being as what has been perishable has been raised to become imperishable in Christ. Jonathan Edwards had a view of the glory of God tingling every sense for all of eternity. Of every glorious sense that we have in this world of taste and touch, heightened most gloriously perhaps in the intimacy of a spouse, all of those kind of sensations magnified in Christ, tingling through your recreated and resurrected body for forever as it erupts in praise to the God who saved you. That's a Puritan writing that. That we become alive with joy in God alone. That's why John Trapp, the Puritan scholar, wrote this. No duty is more pressed in both Testaments, that's the Old Testament and the New Testament, than this, of rejoicing in the Lord. Remember what the Apostle Paul says? Rejoice always. That's a command. That's not just a suggestion for your best life now. 
This is what it looks like when those who have been filled with, from the wells of salvation, that the water of life springs forth from their hearts. He says, No duty is more pressed in both Testaments than this, of rejoicing in the Lord. It is no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. What he's saying is, at the heart of the gospel, on the other side of repenting is rejoicing. On the other side of turning from sin is finding a well of salvation that cannot be exhausted, and it leads to sing praises. That's not something that happens when you become a really mature Christian. That's what happens when you are met violently with the grace of God in Christ. It flows out of you like a fire hydrant. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he asked the Father on our behalf that, quote, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What is his joy? It's the knowledge of the Father. They want, I want my joy. How does he describe salvation? Salvation is them having my joy. With joy you will draw water. Paul defined the essence of Christianity this way. The kingdom is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's why he writes one chapter later, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Ryan Adams is gonna preach on that tonight. All of you need to come back for that. We're gonna tease out what that means. Isaiah sees a day when a restored people will sing and shout in celebration of the only asset that they have. And it's the only one that matters. It's the Holy One of Israel. God is the gospel. So as one commentator wrote, the reason why Christian missions will write the last happy chapter in history is the promise of the great presence of God with his people. God is not content to stand off at a distance. He has always planned to restore Eden and dwell with his people. He dwelt with his people, Israel, in the tabernacle, in the temple. He tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus. Now we, his church, are his temple. God dwells with us in Christ through his indwelling Holy Spirit. We are his people. He is our God, and he now dwells with us. And what we know in part and we see in a mirror yet dimly, we will one day see face to face. We'll behold it with our eyes. Faith will give way to sight. The glory of the new creation. What shall we say then in the face of such a great love of God? We will say, sing praise to the Lord. He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all of the earth because the whole earth is going to be filled with his glory as the water fills the seas. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's what Isaiah sees. That's only six verses. We get 66 books we can't even begin to get to the bottom of these wells. That's amazing grace. Let's pray and enjoy the Lord's Supper together.